you know, I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's been kind of a tough year, but I don't know. I'm feeling kind of good, strong, like I'm connected to a powerful, all-consuming evil that's going to suck the world into a fiery oblivion. How you doing? Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Conversations with Dead People, the seventh episode of season seven. Conversations with Dead People aired on November 12, 2002, and was written by Jane Espenson, Drew Goddard, and Marty Noxon, who is uncredited, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by Nick Mark, a name we've seen on seven episodes of Buffy, starting with season four's much-beloved Something Blue. Conversations with Dead People is the last episode that Mark will direct for Buffy. So coming from last week's less-than-impressive him and moving into Conversations with Dead People gives me a bit of quality whiplash, but that's okay. Conversations with Dead People is another atypical episode of Buffy, which seems to be the goal here in season seven. And yet... It is in this atypical expression that season seven feels like it's getting back on track. There is something poetic in the way that the episodes in this season break the rules, go to unexpected places, and challenge our expectations and our comfort zones. See, I can appreciate what makes poetry great without, you know, actually liking it. Conversations with Dead People is poetic in its structure, and it's the episode that launches us full on into our conflict with this season's big bad, and we are not pulling punches on complications or consequences. Before we get started, I'm going to warn you guys, I'm breaking my rules a little bit this week. I've tried to dance around who the big bad is this season because, well, spoilers, but this week we're facing the big bad right on, and although we haven't quite named it yet in the story, I'm going to stop dancing around it and just call it what it is. The first, as in the first evil, a presence we last saw in Amends from season three. All right, let's get into the weeds. Maybe you're trying to protect yourself? In Conversations with Dead People, Buffy bumps into an old high school classmate who studied psych in college before being turned into a vampire. Not so much. From committing. I commit. I'm committed. I'm a committee. Willow pulls a late night study session at the library and gets a strange visitor. I know, it's kind of weird because we never really met. Or kind of weird because you're really dead. Dawn yeah. hangs out alone at home and then suddenly isn't alone anymore. Do it again, I heard you. Andrew and Jonathan return to town with the intent to make right everything they did wrong. But a ghostly Warren urges Andrew to make things much much worse. Buffy works out her issues with Holden, but not before he tells her something truly disturbing. What do you mean? How do you know Spike? What do you mean, how? He was the guy that, um, oh, what's the word? Sired. Yeah. He was the guy that sired me. Dawn casts out the evil spirit and finally gets to speak to Joyce. Buffy won't choose you. She'll be against you. Willow figures out that Cassie isn't Cassie and isn't bringing any messages from Tara. And not Cassie admits that things are about to get serious. You don't know Hurts. This last year is going to seem like cake after what I put you and your friends through, and I'm not a fan of easy death. And Spike goes out for a night's prowl in Sunnydale, chats up a woman, and then kills her. When I was talking about conversations with dead people being poetic, I wasn't kidding. 
We open with this musical montage of close-ups as a singer and her band get ready to take the stage, the music serving to connect the disparate short stories that comprise this episode. As if the atypical shot composition wasn't enough to hint that this will not be your standard episode of Buffy, we get an episode title card, which has only happened one other time in the run of Buffy, for Once More with Feeling, which was speaking to a completely atypical aesthetic. Why do we have a title card on Conversations with Dead People? Well, for one, it's a subtle clue that we shouldn't get too comfortable. While almost none of our Season 7 episodes have been exactly typical, this one is coming right out and saying, don't expect this to be what you're used to. And we follow that up with a date card, which we've never done before on Buffy. November 12th, 2002, the air date of the episode. Then we double down on this strange move by placing a time card, 8.01 p.m., giving the exact moment that the live viewing audience is watching that shot. We never do this on Buffy. Why are we doing it now? What does locking this moment down in time do for us? Well, for one, it creates a heightened sense of the now, the immediacy of this experience. It also tells us that we don't know what's going to happen. We can't know because we are living it right now and the future isn't written yet. But in the end, whether you consciously noted the title in date cards or not, I know that I have always sat up a little straighter and took a little more notice from the beginning of this episode because the first thing we're told through these visual cues is to expect the unexpected, which is exactly what we get. The song begins and we get shots from four of the five short stories we're going to see in this episode, none of which will interact with each other at all. We get Buffy patrolling the graveyard, Spike drinking at the bronze, Willow studying at the library, Dawn coming home alone, and at the end of the opening sequence... Alone. Here we go. Hitting that alone so hard right at the moment that Buffy is no longer technically alone is an interesting choice, especially because each of the stories we're going to get in this episode all feature protagonists who are alone, even when there's someone else there. Hey, I, I don't mean to be Count Budinsky here, but you just don't seem as thrilled. Is it because we're going to fight? It's because I'm going to win. <laughs> Hello. Two years of Taekwondo and vampire strength. I think somebody's counting their chickens. Of all the stories we get in conversations with dead people, Buffy's impromptu counseling session with vampire Holden Webster is probably my favorite. The unexpected friendship between enemies forged by ritual and tradition, these few moments of camaraderie amidst an epic and endless battle between good and evil, this kind of thing is my catnip, guys, I'll admit it. And sure, it's essentially a one-act play of chit-chat, no goals, no active narrative movement, just talking. It's the kind of thing that could be self-indulgent twaddle, the kind of thing I would ordinarily not care for, but here, in this context, with these five stories dancing carefully around each other, all held together by theme instead of direct narrative action? Yeah, I'll allow it. The dialogue is crisp and agile. I find Holden Webster to be incredibly charming. And Buffy's sharing of her innermost romantic turmoil with a vampire she plans to dust in a few. It's both delightful on its own merits and a wonderful break from the emotionally wrecking events happening elsewhere in Sunnydale. Things are coming, Dawn. Listen, things are on their way. I love you and I love Buffy. The montage of Dawn fooling around, getting pizza on Buffy's shirt, playing Slayer games at home. It's probably one of my favorite Dawn moments. 
This kid has been a mystical key and an annoying little sister, but now she's a kid in all the good, fun ways. And it's wonderful to see her like that, although it doesn't last nearly long enough. Then things start getting weird, and Dawn takes charge, which is also wonderful to see. Although, look, I get why Dawn took a baseball bat to all the technology, but you know, it's not the TV's fault that your house is possessed. I'm just saying, I hate it when technology is harmed. If she had taken the bat to Willow's MacBook, I would have cried. Thank God smartphones didn't exist at that time. I might have needed medication. I mean, seriously, you want to freak me out? Don't do ghosts. Show me a cracked iPhone screen. But my personal quirks aside, Dawn's story is truly a horror story, serving up the girl alone in the house trope and giving us the shining style ick with the super creepy mother's milk is red today appearing on the wall in what I headcanon as pizza sauce. Because we'll think it's blood. Now, it's no secret I don't like horror, and a lot of this story is really over the top. Chairs piling on top of each other, blood writing on the wall, things exploding, creepy voice saying get out, the door flying open, and wild wind tossing things all over the place. It's all a bit much. Pushed too far. Less creepy and more ostentatious. But I don't care, because I love Dawn. I love her resourcefulness. She calls for Buffy, but when she doesn't get an answer, she gets out the bat and she commands this presence to communicate with her by telling her exactly how it is going to communicate with her. And while everything else is over the top, the appearance of Joyce lying dead on the couch behind Dawn is so subtle, you could almost miss it. I mean, if you weren't so totally traumatized from season five's The Body that you can never look at that couch without seeing Joyce lying there. Oh, just me then? Liars. Dawn's take-charge attitude in the face of all this insanity, her desire to connect with and protect Joyce even as her own life and limb are being threatened, her ability to get candles and magical flotsam and toss it out shouting at the demon presence that is tearing apart her house, this is the Dawn I love and it makes up for every annoying moment Dawn has ever had. But the most heartbreaking moment, of course, was when Joyce was finally able to appear to Dawn and to tell her that in the end, Buffy won't choose her. Recently, I guested on a Buffy podcast called The Prophecy Guys, and we had a fantastic conversation. We ended it with them asking me who my favorite big bad was, and I picked the first. And this is why. There are other big bads who are flashier and funnier and more charming and even better written. But there isn't a single big bad who is as to the core fucking evil as the first. None of them are scarier and none of them are as challenging. And this is just one more reason why I love season seven. You're just scared. Of course I'm scared. Last time we were here, 33.3 bar percent of us were flayed alive. Calm down. Andrew and Jonathan come into town having learned apparently very little about using narrative as a tool for greater understanding versus being a tool hiding inside a narrative. For the most part, the Jonathan and Andrew stuff is pure comic relief, set starkly between Dawn's terror and Willow's heartbreaking conversation with Cassie. Even when Warren shows up all creepy and ghosty, things are still played in this classic, funny, geek trio style. That boy is our last hope. No, there is another. Wait, really? Who's our last hope? No, I was just going with it. It was a thing. I... He's our last hope. It isn't until the final moments of what is to become just Andrew's story that we see the power of his narrativization of reality. It allows him to murder Jonathan. And we have our first blood of the season as Jonathan bleeds out into the very evil-looking seal in the school basement. Well, we have the first blood that we know about. 
The thing about redemption is that there's no margin of error, right? If you do terrible things and then you want to make up for it, you have to walk such a tight line. You don't have the wiggle room most of the rest of us have to stumble, to screw up, to fall. If you do, your redemption is ruined. It, like so much else, is simply lost. Spike is walking that tight line, and at this point, I'm rooting for him, hard. I want him to be better, to be the hero, to prove that with a soul, he can be this one simple thing, a good man. And when we see him bite this woman at the end of this episode, right after Holden tells Buffy that Spike also sired him, it is such a punch to the gut. It was hard to imagine forgiving Spike before, hard to imagine him ever being whole enough to become the man he wants to be, the man, I'll admit it, that I want him to be. But now, after this, seeing him kill at the end of the episode, even as in my mind I'm making up excuses and stories about how Holden Webster was mistaken about the vamp who sired him and hoping that there's still room to believe that Spike might be redeemable. What can I say? I'm a sucker for a redemption story. I want to see people come back. I want to see them be better. I want to believe it's possible for all of us. To have Spike's redemption dangled in front of me like that, only to have it whisked away, as I know there are no excuses and no places to hide, Spike is killing again. Man. You killed people. You can't see her. It's just how it is. I'm sorry. Of all the ways the first is messing with people, I think the first, as Cassie, giving Willow messages from Tara, is the coldest and cruelest and most affecting. Before I even get started on this storyline, I have to acknowledge a couple of things. One, we've had some contradictory stories out there about why Amber Benson didn't come back to play Tara herself. Amber Benson has claimed she turned it down because she didn't want Tara to be a villain. The Buffy producers have said that she just didn't have time to do it. Regardless, I've always been disappointed that Benson wasn't there to play Tara. Until now. And here are my reasons. While having Amber Benson come back as Tara would have been the kind of devastating that is terrible and awesome, there are a couple of twists of the knife here that work so well that I'm almost happy it didn't work out. One is Azura Sky as Cassie slash the first. Her performance is so subtly evil and so completely different from, yet reminiscent of Cassie, that it's chilling to watch. But even more than that, I love that the first chooses not to be Tara, to tell Willow that because of what Willow did, she isn't allowed to see Tara. It's heartbreaking and awful, and it hits all of Willow's guilt and devastation so profoundly. But there's more. We haven't hit it yet, so minor spoilers, but there's this idea that the first can pretend to be any dead person it wants. Any dead person. Except... I like to believe that the first can't be Tara, that Tara, wherever she is, is untouchable by that kind of evil or has even done something to make herself untouchable. That's part of my headcanon, and it adds a small layer of victory into this dark, sad space. And as, in other places, Dawn is having a wild horror adventure and Buffy is working out her issues with a vampire, Willow is speaking simply and clearly and directly with the first, as Cassie, and Willow's holding her own. Let's just revisit that. She is holding her own. In the midst of what she thinks is a conversation with Tara, the love of her life, whose murder incited a fall into darkness that she's still trying to recover from. 
Even in the midst of this wild wish fulfillment fantasy, Willow has the presence of mind to see that something's not right, to call it out, and to stand up to it. Imagine the strength that takes, the self-knowledge and awareness, the discipline to let go of what she just moments before thought was Tara, and to face down the first and tell it in primetime appropriate language, to go fuck itself. I have loved Willow from the first moment I ever saw her on screen, but never, never as much as I love her right now. This is badass Willow. She's showing up to play. Conversations with Dead People, as we've discussed, is not your typical Buffy episode. It's essentially five short stories, some shorter than others, stitched together by one theme. At least one of the parties in every conversation is dead. It is, in turns, scary, funny, frustrating, heartbreaking, and game-changing. I've always loved season seven, as you all know, because I tell you every week. But until this watch, until this deep, critical look at what's actually happening here... I've never been completely blown away by it. We've thrown out Buffy House style. We've amped up our horror game. We've raised the stakes, created a big bad who is not at all funny or goofy. And we've landed consequences and shot sideways our crowd-pleasing redemption story. After a difficult season like six and a barnstormer like five, to come into seven with this kind of confidence, strength, and fuck all y'all swagger, it's astounding. And just so you know, I am in. I am all in. All right, that'll do it for today. Remember to visit Chipperish Media at chipperish.com for more great podcasts, including How Story Works, a free college-level course in narrative theory which teaches writers and story appreciators how to think about and work with story. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 8, Sleeper. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.